Welcome back to He Says, She Says, God Says. It's just me today. I'm just doing a quick introduction to our part two episode on money. And in this episode, I interview Pastor Chris Allen, who not only being a pastor, but also is a registered accountant and has years and years of experience in marriage counseling and helping couples both before they get married and after they get married, manage the challenges around money in their marriage. He has lots of gold, lots of wisdom in here. So sit back, enjoy. I'm sure you'll take lots out of it. Pastor Chris Allen, welcome to He Says, She Says, God Says. Thanks. I'm happy to uh, participate. We're here, we're here in Canberra. You're a, you're a local pastor here in Canberra. I am. And we're going to talk today a little bit about money, uh, in particular money in marriage. And you've got a fair bit of experience in this, both in pre- and post-marriage counselling. I do. I do actually do post-marriage counselling and also as a professional uh, providing financial advice to individuals all the way through to companies. And So you're an accountant by, accountant by trade? Commercial accountant, yeah. I did my degree way back in the early 70s. So and obviously worked in various environments. And for the past 20 years, I've just recently retired, past 20 years, just in a chartered accounting office. Yeah. So. Yeah, okay. So you've got a fair bit of experience to talk about this topic, both in uh, in the natural sense, in terms of the right. you know, natural principles, but then also obviously the spiritual principles that we read about. So, so when you're you know, talking to couples you know, before they get married, what are you typically talking to them about? Uh, I have to. I go through the whole range of um, subjects. I think I cover eight different topics, and money is obviously one of them. Uh, and uh, so we begin right back with you know talking about uh, who they are, their personalities, etc. All the way through. Before I do money, I uh, would cover the topic on sex. So money becomes a relief after having covered <laughs> that topic. And they all uh, get uh, a meal from my wife before we do it. And that's always a great incentive. They'll come back for my wife's cooking. <laughs> Quite often we'll uh, be underneath a big uh, vine, uh, grapevine and, uh, you know, so it was a, quite a nice romantic It's a lovely, it's a, it is a lovely setting. Yeah, but uh, the concluding one is, you know, uh, what uh, value are you as a couple now going to be able to bring to the fellowship, you know, which is a good concluding area. So preparing them to realise that not only are you uh, getting married, but... Uh, uh, happy marriages are a great resource for the Lord. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it doesn't matter what research we read, whether it's research that's done externally, you know, uh, or we see inside the church, money can be a big issue in many marriages, um, can't it? Well, if uh, you talk about my post-marriage counselling, there's two areas that come up all the time. One is communication, yeah. surprise, surprise, yeah. and the other is money. When I'm um, dealing with uh, work and uh, quite often, you know, you're having to deal with um, uh, breakups in marriage and uh, preparing for divorces, etc. the biggest issue, you know, is not 
extramarital relationships or whatever it is generally uh, breakdowns which will have a uh, root in money. And the statistics on divorce identify that money, uh, well, uh, yeah, money and communication are the two biggest problems. Yeah. And so what is it? What is it about, you know, the issues around money that actually cause people to have issues in the relationship? One of the reasons is not having a godly attitude to um, uh, dealing with uh, money. I always uh, start uh, with um, two issues that I I try to uh, get across uh, and they relate to um, how to uh, have the appropriate attitude to money and uh, pull them out of scripture, you know, all the issues to do with generosity, uh, those types of things. But I also quote a proverb, which is Proverbs 13.4, and uh, if you read that, you'll actually find that it's repeated around five times just within the Proverbs alone. Is that right? In various forms. So it says that the sluggard desires but has nothing, uh, while the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. And uh, so I talk about the issue of um, what uh, that means, the people desiring but uh, not doing anything. And what I say to them is, is, you know, if God's going to bless that scripture, then it says the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. So I tell them that uh, you don't have to be the financial guru You just have to be diligent. You know, God is the financial guru and we invite God into our diligence. So you quite often hear um, people uh, being told to go away and pray about something. Go away and pray about it. What are they actually going to be praying about? God's not going to bless uh, laziness. God's not going to uh, bless pride. But if we actually are diligent, and particularly in the area of money, you'll see that God God blesses it. So some of the people that are very poor in terms of financial knowledge, but they really take the time to be diligent about it, you actually see, you know, uh, the rewards in their marriage. Yeah, okay, wow. So as you're doing this pre-marriage counselling, what advice are you giving couples around uh, how they should think about money, treat money, talk about money? Well, I um, take quite a bit of time because I'm a, a, an accountant as well. They actually get a free <laughs> session on um, you know personal financial planning yeah. with the whole lot. So... When you ask me that question, you know, uh, I, it takes me two and a half, three hours on the first night, yep. depending on who they are. Some of them are very keen to know more. Uh, so, you know, you could actually have two nights, two good meals from my wife. So we actually go all the way through it. And um, uh, I know the topic that uh, budgeting you know, is often um, talked about, and I know that you've covered in other things. But to be able to uh, get people to budget, so this is inside the church, outside the church, you know, uh, you can talk about it till you're blue in the face, but uh, you'll still find that more than 50% of the people you've uh, spoken to will not ever prepare a budget, you know, uh, the ones that do prepare the budget, I can give you examples of, you know, the, the fruit of it. But uh, 
the, the, the issues that come up is uh, they get all keen about it, but uh, they forget what kind of personality they are. Okay. And so I actually go through, we already would have done a personality uh, chat, you know, a temperament thing. Mm -hmm. So I've got a good idea about the two couples if we're talking about pre-marriage. Uh, and so I then challenge them, you know, for your particular type of personality, what does that actually mean in relation to preparing a budget and maintaining a budget? So if I've got someone who I would describe as a peaceful phlegmatic, you know, well, this is where everything goes through to the keeper, you know, in a cricketing term, unless something happens, I, you know, to tell them to be preparing a spreadsheet and doing a whole range of things, you know, I'm actually wasting my time. Yeah. So what we actually do is after we've chatted about the two types of personalities that we might have, we then actually look at how you would do a budge, budget within those personalities, yeah. then how you would actually review a budget in those personalities, how you would um, uh, continue to keep records with those personalities. So I really try and get them to understand uh, who they are. So if I've got uh, someone who's you know, a heavy, perfect, melancholic and whatever else, you know, we might prepare a great little spreadsheet, you know, and, uh, and they'll run it for me. But for the majority of people, and so I'll give my wife as an example, my wife is definitely peaceful phlegmatic. So all I get her to do is to um, keep the records. So my job is to make sure I got a receipt for everything. And uh, she'll happily once a week, she pulls them out of my wallet and pulls her stuff out and she happily records it. And then no more than once or twice a year, we'll actually summarise that and group it. And uh, she's got a, a good idea of where where we're going. Yeah. So, so with this a personality, so you're doing some sort of personality assessment or they're doing do. a personality do. profile That's right. um, for them to understand their style. So you're then potentially uncovering that, you know, some people are just not interested or it's not their strength or, or you know, there's one party in the couple that's going to be more naturally, you know, based on their personality, naturally attuned to managing the budget versus another who may not be. Yeah, I'll give you an example of uh, one uh, in the church. So this was post-marriage counselling. So, so when we say post-marriage counselling, we're talking about post the wedding day or post? Well, yeah, they'd been married and they had teenagers. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Not post the marriage is now over. No. Yeah, okay, yeah. Got it. <laughs> so they've got teenagers, but uh, probably for 10 years leading up to finally getting me to come in and deal with the matter, they would argue about money. And both of them had reasonable jobs. Yeah. But they never actually went on any decent holidays. They never ever, you know, if they had to do repairs to the house, it was always an issue, whatever. So the first time I chatted with them, I actually, because I didn't do pre-marriage counselling with this couple, they came to the church married. I actually did the personality temperament test with them and got them to recognise who they are. And the, the two personalities, one was a powerful cleric, which, you know, really likes to control and whatever. The other was a perfect melancholic, you know, that uh, is into detail and yeah. whatever. 
And uh, so the two of them are actually trying to run the house, uh, but in their own particular ways. What I did is I knew the, uh, that one of them was very busy. The other had a bit more time. So we designed it around the one that had a bit more time. And uh, so we then went and actually prepared the budget. And, you know, they had, we talked through, you know, what's fixed, what's variable, you know, uh, what is um, discretionary and whatever. You know, we went through all that. And then we created a very simple budget because even though this person it was a powerful cleric, they were medical-type people, not uh, finance-type people. So I created it for that person. And this person, and we set within it a goal that all the, the children had wanted. They wanted to go to Disneyland, and the wife had always wanted to go back to England to visit family, and they'd never, ever had the money. And so we actually included those goals in the budget. And within a little bit over two years, they actually went on a holiday to the UK and came back via the US and went to Disneyland. And that was just simply by being diligent and running a budget and having these big goals. They were willing to sacrifice a lot of discretionary uh, spending in other areas because they wanted to achieve these. So to, you know, to challenge that you know, short-term thinking, that short-term spending for that longer-term exactly. goal of going on this exactly. holiday, yeah. So it actually gave them the idea of understanding what discretionary spending was. Yeah, wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so it was just understanding that, that you know, their, their personalities were the reason why they were clashing about money and setting up some frameworks and boundaries about who was going to do what. They were both spending money because one was wanting to control and one was wanting to control. So there was never a discussion about, you know, what are we going to do to replace the car? So those things disappeared out of that marriage. Yeah, wow. You know, which, is, which is lovely. That's fantastic. In relation to discretionary spending, I, I'll give you another one, which was uh, one of the men in the fellowship was always having to help his mum uh, who was on the pension. She always needed uh, money. And uh, she vowed that uh, she was only gave herself the occasional little uh, treats. So uh, the, um, the son eventually, you know, asked me to, could I talk to the mum? And all I did is I got her to keep all her receipts. For, we did it for two months. And then she sat down with me and we actually categorised them. And uh, lo and behold, you know, more than 50% of her spending was luxurious. <laughs> but, and eventually, you know, we, we didn't actually change her spending habits. The, uh, so the son just realised what, what his mum was like and uh, he realised. But uh, what uh, the reason I'm making one of these comments is, is why more than 50% of people never, ever do a budget is because we're very happy to lie to ourselves. And we find this, you know, as accountants, you know, we will ask a question, uh, what, how much do you spend on your groceries? And you have two categories of people. You have one which wants to tell you how 
extravagant they are and, you know, the number will be this large number and these other people will want to tell you how frugal they are. And, and, uh, but when, when we go then and uh, go through the analysis and, and uh, do it, both of them are lying to themselves, you know, and we, we lie to ourselves because we have to live with ourselves, you know, and we, so we actually lie to ourselves about our finances. We believe that we can trust our memory we can't trust our memory and our estimates of um, how much we're spending in different areas, unless you record it, you know, uh, what you're living in is this world of lies because we have to live with ourselves. We don't want to feel that we're terrible budgeters. We don't want to feel that we're terrible with money. But unless you write it down, you've got no idea. Yeah, right. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, and I assume then, you know, if you've got two people in a relationship where both aligned to themselves, right, it could potentially then cause issues exactly. in the relationship about, um, you know, they might feel that they're lying to each other. That's right. The, um, the reason for the arguments that come up is, is quite often uh, the wife has been given the task of managing the grocery budget and then when you come to some big bill, and the money's not there, then an automatic assumption is is you've spent too much on groceries. Yeah. You know, uh, when in reality, you know, when you start looking at it, the wife's been doing quite well, but there's a, a number of other items that have come up which they just simply forget. You can't rely on your memory. Yeah. You've had to pay that, you've had that, and you've had that, and it wasn't the groceries at all. But the argument will all be be about the wife hasn't managed the grocery. And that's because I assume that, you know, the groceries are a regular thing every day, every week, right, as yeah. opposed to those once-off discretionary things you've you know, forgotten, you've forgotten about. about. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. that's interesting. And so, yeah, I mean, you're not a, you're not a spring chicken, right? You've been, doing, you've been doing this for a few years now. Do you think that people's view of discretionary spending has changed over the years? The world has changed. You know, uh, so I'm definitely part of the baby boomer generation. And the stresses that we had in relation to money are different to the stresses uh, now. We also had... Can you tell me what the differences are? Okay, well, if I use my example, even though we were in that period where uh, interest rates, you know, our first mortgage might have been in Canberra, you've got a special concession by the government, you know, so it was around 7.5%. But your second mortgage could be anywhere from 11% to 15%, you know. But surprise, surprise, the average length of a mortgage in Canberra, uh, you would take it out over 10 years and I generally paid off in seven years. Now, that tells you that it was a very different type of part of a budgeting process so we, we were able to uh, see the light at the end of a tunnel for a mortgage yeah. because we knew if we hammered it hard, yeah. we could actually get rid of it pretty quickly. Current generation of people are taking up uh, mortgages 30, 40 years. So considering about hitting that hard, even though as an accountant, you know, we might start looking at, um, you know, you need to bring, bring this mortgage down, because these time frames are so much longer, there's a total different psyche that you're dealing with. Uh, the other thing is, is two parents working. You have 
downtime means different things, you know, when two parents are working. So there was a book that was uh, written Kiyosaki way back uh, in the Dad, 80s. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but he followed it up with another one called The Cash Flow Quadrant. So where he categorised people into four groups and, and you had the uh, saver, which was the people who were employees. Yeah. So an employee, you've categorised as if you're going to do any good, you have to learn how to uh, save. The next category was the self-employed the contractor, that group. The third group was the, uh, the business people and the fourth group were the investors. Mm -hmm. You have a higher proportion of people now that are in that category of the self-employed or contractor area. Kiyosaki categorised those people as the spenders. And the reason for it, if I use a doctor, uh, and uh, I've had a number of examples where I've actually had to go through and do uh, planning for doctors because, you know, they want to plan at a certain time for their retirement. And uh, so the doctor contractor or, you know, uh, on contract, so they've generally got a lovely house. They generally got two very nice cars. Their children have gone off to private education and you're always able to talk to them about the, the lovely holiday that they've, they've been on. And the reason is, is, you know, uh, contracting, you know, uh, and self-employed people, there's an awful lot of stress that uh, goes with that. And it's a very different stress to an employee. And so they feel they have to reward themselves. And so there's always the good holiday. Uh, the wife has been working and they're working. Uh, so uh, they actually will go out on awful lot more times than what the baby boomers did. So it's the time horizons associated with money and uh, heavier stress because you've got two workers and a higher proportion of them are in employment, which has actually a higher stress level. So Kiyosaki recognised that way back when he wrote Rich Dad, yeah. Poor Dad, you know. So we might include the links to those books if people are interested in, in reading them. Would that be worth them having a read? They're, they're, they're dated, but the um, information underlying them is still still useful. Yeah, okay. Yeah, good. There has been people pick up. They were pivotal books and a lot of people have written books picking up on those topics. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, the world's different now in a whole range of different uh, elements. So um, a young couple getting married, what advice would you give them today around uh, thinking about their finances, uh, thinking about mortgages, buying houses, etc.? We obviously try and um, deal with the issue of um, budgeting at some point. So I do give them two key factors, you know, uh, the uh, sluggard desires, but has nothing but the soul of the diligent is made fat and talk about what diligence actually means. Yeah. And I also uh, go through uh, the issue of giving, particularly in a church environment, um, they assume that just means tithes and offerings, but it, but it actually is bigger. It's about uh, having the right heart, heart attitude. So I provide two fundamentals, you know, and get them to 
understand them. Yeah. And so what does diligence look like? So in your in your view, what does diligence look like for okay. a young couple? In, in diligence, it actually does mean keeping records in a financial setting. So moving away from baby boomers, so if I was um, dealing with a baby boomer, I would talk about a spreadsheet, you know, and uh, we would sit down and prepare a spreadsheet. Even uh, I was chatting to one of the professors from the ANU who happens to be in our fellowship. You know, he runs a spreadsheet, you know, and he's a professor in accounting. So, uh, for, so for a younger couple, it would be an app or something like that. That's exactly yeah. right. So what I do is we actually then talk through, now we talk through the different types of apps that are available. So some of these apps are geared at uh, working towards being an investor. Yeah. Some of them are geared towards, um, you know, the banking type apps are geared towards getting a mortgage and then managing mortgages. So depending on what their um, uh, their income and whatever else, you know, you you can talk about the various um, apps. And the, the advantage now of these apps is that uh, once you uh, determine, you know, what your discretionary, what your fixed, et cetera, and you've categorised them, and as long as you keep using your uh, cards, it'll categorise them for you. So you spend actually more time actually looking at the results rather than doing that. Than doing the hack work. So spreadsheets has the hack work and then you got to do the review and then the constant record keeping. So uh, the the next generations down, they've actually got a lot more financial pressures, but if they're willing to take on some of these apps, they actually find that they've actually got tools that uh, allow them to manage their money better. And it's real-time data in most cases exactly. too, isn't it, which, exactly. which obviously helps in decision-making. So, and, and that also gives them prompts. You know, uh, so some of these apps are free and so they don't have a lot of the bells and whistles. Some of them you might be paying $8 a month or whatever. They're not a lot of money, but it'll actually prompt and so remind you that you've actually got a large... Uh, bill coming up, etc., because it creates some um, patterns. Yeah, okay. Um, well, we might talk about those uh, at another time in terms of what apps you're, you know, you're typically seeing people get benefit from, and maybe we'll include some links uh, for those in the in the podcast too. So diligence you know, around record keeping is obviously important. Yeah. Does it extend beyond that? It does. So it also means to be open and honest with each other. So it moves into communicating so that um, we're not imposing uh, the burden on one of the parties. You know, so uh, even though one may take on a greater share of it, I actually want it to actually be uh, a shared issue. Uh, and so that uh, they also not, a, not only um, know how to contribute appropriately, but they're also able to look forward to the rewards and that that are coming. So uh, it means a lot, a lot more um, planning. You know, uh, so modern day young people, they've got uh, an issue of uh, having to look at uh, mortgages that are substantially bigger mortgages than what we were looking at you know, during our baby boomer. And substantially. Days. 
not just because, hey, you know, the value of money is different, but substantially in terms of um, mortgage value versus income as a percentage. Exactly. Saving up for a deposit when I was young was a 12-month hard hit. You know, uh, saving up for a deposit now is substantially uh, greater. And and is that just because of that or is it because, you know, when you were you know, young saving up for a deposit, you had less things to spend on, less pressures to buy things. Is there, is there that too? Uh, there is. Life was definitely a lot simpler. But uh, having said that, a car was a much bigger decision point than what it is now. But uh, the biggest change really has been the cost of housing and the mortgage associated. Do you think we have different expectations now in terms of our first house or our second house? compared to, you know, when you were... Well, uh, I also talk about uh, the strategies that you can do when you're looking at housing. So if you're wanting to buy your forever house, uh, then that has one financial strategy. If you're looking at seeing a a stepping stone to your forever house, that has a different um, strategy. So they're also different types of uh, houses that you're looking at. Uh, so when you're young and you don't have children, etc., cetera, uh, moving into a unit can be a strategy that you're uh, wanting to do. I do talk to them about the difference between a unit and uh, buying a house and uh, how uh, units are valued and uh, the risks associated with buying units versus the risk of a house. In terms of capital growth risk or? Well, the value of a unit is made up of the, a small amount of the, the land, a small amount of the construction, small amount quite often of um, common area, and then a huge area which is called froth. So units have a lot more froth, you know, if you're thinking of it as a milkshake or whatever, units have a lot more froth built into their price than a house. You know, so a house is a huge proportion of it will be the land value, a smaller proportion will be the bill value, and very little froth. Now, froth is um, done by, you know, you have rising markets and declining markets, so froth rises and uh, ebbs and flows in that but units, uh, the, the amount that can be absorbed by froth is much higher. So they're able to talk about the location, the, um, the fact that you're on the 18th floor and you've got these lovely views and, you know, a whole range of to things. the shops and you can you've do You've got yeah. the pool yeah. and whatever, you know. So units are a lot harder investment decision. And I'll give you an example of someone who bought a a unit, they decided that they would buy a unit so that they could get into the property market. Uh, the unit uh, had was a high rise and when they bought it, uh, they unbeknownst to them, the people who were supposed to be doing the um, property management, uh, you know, so the um, uh, people who were uh, doing the body corporate, had made no real allowance for when the uh, units had got to the 
point where the external cladding needed to be repaired and needed to be painted. Right. So when they so, when they bought it, you know, said the strata fees are going to be you know yes, a thousand bucks a quarter or whatever. So no idea of what a sinking fund was. Yep. They did not look at the sinking fund. Had no idea that there was almost no money in the sinking fund. Yeah. And uh, so uh, they bought into a one point six million dollar bill that was coming to that uh, high-rise unit. None of that had been mentioned to them. Yeah. You know, if you don't ask the right questions, you don't get the right answer. And so then at some point in the future, right, the property maintenance, you know, or, or strata management people will come to a come to the you know, all the unit holders and say, we need to spend this much money. They'd already come to the unit holders. The people who owned the unit knew they couldn't afford to put that money in. Yeah. They sold the unit, sold it at a reasonable price, but the people who were buying it, that was the top end of their yeah. price. You know, uh, the real value of that unit had some in, uh, included a little bit of what should be going into a sinking fund, yeah. but they didn't have any of that spare money to right. pick it up. Another, uh, another couple they bought and uh, there was a retrofitting for um, fire safety and... Uh, they received a, a much smaller number, but it was still $50,000 that they had to go looking for. So it's no, I mean, I imagine it's no different than just buying a normal house. You've got to do your research on the house. You've got to get well, it in. To get it in. I'm identifying there's more research that needs to be done if you're buying into a unit. And uh, I'm identifying you need to understand what a sinking fund is, what uh, the uh, your body corporate people's responsibilities are and what uh, and how they're managing it. Uh, so you need to be a lot more diligent in in those those areas. So you do have a lot of legislation that is attempting to manage those things, but they're only managing uh, some of it. They don't take away the whole issue. The best person to manage your money is you. Uh, the people selling the property are not there to help you. It's not in their best interest to do that. It's their best interest yeah. to sell you the property. So, you know, with you know, when couples get into financial distress, what are the main causes of, of them getting into you know, real financial distress? Uh, the main, they haven't asked enough questions. Yeah. They have relied on their memory. They haven't dealt with a budget. They have no idea how much they're spending on discretionary. So very simple things. Apart from people losing jobs or whatever, you know, you do have those other issues that uh, come along. When uh, those issues do come along, you know, uh, banks and uh, other uh, people are willing to help, you know, and uh, so some people uh, try and deal with the stress themselves and then take too, too long. You know, uh, if you've lost your job, uh, then be open and honest with uh, whoever's got your mortgage, you know, whoever's dealing with your utilities, etc. And so out of that's payment plans or exactly. deferral of, you know, yes. etc. Yep. Yeah, so, and if you're running a budget, you're actually far easier able to talk to these people uh, than if you're not running a budget. Because you've, you've got the data there you've to talk to them. You've got data there. Yeah. Yeah. So young people, you know, if they're running an app, uh, the bank, you know, uh, already is happy because they can actually see what you're dealing with and uh, they're willing to uh, give you um, little holiday periods while you get yourself back in order. So 
husband and wives need to know what's going on yeah. so one's not holding all the stress. And uh, record keeping, please, whatever you do, keep yeah. keep some form of records. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's good. So one of the things that Kiyosaki talks about in his books is good debt versus bad debt. Can you talk to that? Yeah, I can. So first of all, being a baby boomer, we had the issue of higher purchase and uh, higher purchase created a lot of problems for people. So for those that don't understand what higher purchase is. Uh, I, I'll just identify you were borrowing money for uh, items like your refrigerator or your furniture and whatever. People would get into trouble. So the government effectively legislated higher purchase to the point where uh, banks and lending agencies, uh, it wasn't the most attractive way of lending money. So they've come up with more creative ways of lending money. And uh, so no further payments until, you know, uh, 2026 or whatever, are really where the lending agencies are looking at how they can get around the legislation that uh, corrected all the uh, problems that we're coming up with um, higher purchase. Even worse than that is, you know, your payday loans and your... Um, uh, those types of um, afterpays. afterpays and stuff, yeah, where the the pain comes after the pleasure. Yeah. And uh, if you do that too much, you know, where you create problems. So I like... Well, the other, the other part about that too is that they're often smaller incremental amounts. Oh, I'll just yes. put that on afterpay. I'll put this on afterpay. And it's only five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or 50 or 100 bucks a month. Yeah. And you do that 10 times. People, again, lie to themselves about uh, how much they spend on the various categories. So they do a budget in their head that allows them to get into these payment programs. But they should understand that, you know, uh, these people aren't lending you money, you know, like this was originally GE money, you know, I'm yeah. doing this. They're not lending you money simply because they know you're going to meet the criteria they're in. They know that more than 50% of people are not going to meet the criteria of meeting that deadline date. Yeah. And then you've got a whole range of penalty situations that come into play. So, so they're, so they're basically betting on you're not going to be able to meet it and then yeah, going to stitch you up. Yeah, a proportion of them not meeting it. And stitch you up with a big interest well, rate or penalty. Well, we had a classic of um, someone buying a computer for their um, child um, because they needed one for school. $2,000 computer ends up costing $5,000, you know, uh, simply because they didn't... Um, uh, they didn't run a budget and they had no idea that this money was going to come up at this particular point in time and they didn't have, have the, the money. So you've got the day-to-day um, -day financial type issues, but uh, then you've actually got uh, what we refer to bad debt, borrowing for holidays, borrowing for uh, things that uh, can be big numbers, but... Uh, borrowing and then having to try and repay. So I think if I remember from reading the book, you know, um, Kiyosaki talks about you know, borrowing for things that are going to appreciate in value rather than things that are going to depreciate in value. Yeah, and so we've had a little uh, interesting uh, situation with cars where we actually went through a little 
bump where cars actually went up in value. But the historical trend for cars is that uh, they will go down in value and not only will they go down in value, they'll increase uh, the running costs, etc. So, so in fact, effectively you lose twice, right? Because you lose on the depreciation of the car and its value and then you lose on the interest that you've paid on that car as well. But uh, in terms of uh, good debt, you know, uh, it would say that... Uh, Borrowing for an investment or borrowing for an asset, a house, etc., uh, can be good debt. But uh, if we look at uh, the bank's lending, they'll lend you up to 50% if you're engaging in some kind of investment, whereas they'll lend you up to 80% if you're buying a house. So depending on what you're dealing with, there is also that risk element associated with your investment and you should be able to get an idea just simply on who's going to lend you the money. If they're willing to lend you 80% of the um, purchase price, then we're moving into a lower risk purchase. Because the bank's taking less risk, right? And because the bank, you know, they, they don't want to lose their money either. No. And so no one wants to end up in another GFC. So they're going to be as relatively stringent around making sure yeah. that uh, that's a good investment. If you're going to borrow for um, a, share, a share portfolio, then the amount that they'll buy, lend you is much, much lower. They're not going to take the risk of the, the, the share market. People then get, uh, they finally do get a house and then they start to build up some equity in that house and then they go to a financial advisor and the financial advisor sees this as, oh, this equity is now something that I can actually use to borrow against for further investments. I always treat the family house in a different way to treating other investments. So you might be surprised, but most accountants are very conservative when it comes to money. And uh, it's probably because they've seen the problems that a lot of other people have got themselves into. They weren't born that way. (laughs) No. Uh, So very conservative when it comes to uh, using the equity in your own home to uh, do further investment. Um, So... Uh, financial advisors love that equity and uh, they like you to use that equity and borrow against that equity. I'm just identifying I'm not a financial advisor and I haven't got that risk profile that financial advisors seem to have. But they're there to make money. They're not there, again, to look after your your money. So be very careful with um, using equity in your own home for buying other things definitely not using it for to uh, go on the holiday if you're going to be investing in something else let's hope it's another asset yeah so what about using the equity in your own home to buy an investment property that's where that's where um if we've got uh, like for like so we've actually got a house and then we're buying a property uh, if we're buying a house and we're buying a unit they're actually two different types of risk profiles but if we're buying a house and a house, they're identical risk profiles, I, I don't have an issue because if I need to sell the investment property, uh, I can then uh, do so and I'm moving it in. If I'm buying in one 
area. So I'm living in Canberra and then I'm buying in Brisbane. I'm actually buying in two different um, markets. If it's equity in my own home, I am much more comfortable people borrowing within the same market because I'll move uh, in a similar pattern. But Plus they're probably going to understand the market yes. uh, better as well. So we're talking about you know, good debt versus bad debt, but of course you can still have good debt but make bad investment decisions. You'll buy the house at too much, you can buy it in the wrong suburb, you can buy it on the when you know, house prices are coming in down. So all of those things obviously are... You know, separate to the, yes. you know, whether it's good or bad debt. So whether it's in uh, Kiyosaki's book or where another book that I've read, but I can still remember exactly, 1883 in a, a UK newspaper. You can remember 1883? You're not that old. Uh, the date. The date, 1883, there was a newspaper article that um, came in one of the UK um, papers which was talking about the emotional investment cycle okay. and talking about how people generally, so this is 1883, remember, people would invest in the shares, the stock market as it was in those days. At the end of the boom, invest ready for the crash. Or they would be looking at a property market that is moving up, moving up, moving up, and then they eventually get the uh, desire to um, build just as the property market. So it's called the emotional investment yeah. cycle yeah. and um, people jump in uh, to it in at an emotional level, yeah. whereas if you do your homework, you should be able to go into the share market at any time of the cycle. You should be able to go into the property market at any time in the cycle as long as you've done your homework. They, they would call that FOMO or fear of missing out, right? Okay. Everyone else is, you know, on this, whether it's Bitcoin or you know, property prices or whatever, and they see everybody else and they think they're going to miss out, so they jump in as well. But they wait and wait and then the emotion becomes too great. And uh, so they were actually able to graph that and uh, identify where it had the emotional investment cycle and it, for many years it would follow uh, this pattern. You knew what was going to follow the, where the share market got up to. The money would then move into property and the money would move into fixed. Then it would, so do your homework. Yeah. The other issue with location, 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 you hear um, real estate agents make that comment. So I bought a property which was not in the location, 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 but uh, I don't also pay an awful lot of um, money for my uh, rates yeah. and whatever, but I knew that over time it would be a good uh, location. But uh, the property, the uh, suburb that I live in is really um, what I would describe working class suburb. So my utility costs and my, very, you know, my costs associated with rates and whatever you know, were very, very manageable. The only time I would uh, be looking at investing in somewhere where you had the, the right location would be if it wasn't my forever home. You know, when you buy your forever home, you're bringing in other is issues about where is the, um, are the schools located, where are the... Uh, shops, where are the other facilities? Yeah. But if you're looking for capital growth, then location, location's important. 
But your forever home is not about capital growth. Yeah, and so so potentially, you know, as you're not your first house, but as you're you know maturing right in in age and you're you know getting into your forties or fifties or sixties, you know, you're that next house that you're going to be in for a long time. You're looking to have lower cost of running that house. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And um, being a lot more attuned to the kind of lifestyle that you're going to have. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. So another topic that I mentioned to people because insurance comes up on televisions all the time. Why does it come up on televisions all the time? Because it makes a lot of money for the insurance companies. So when I, we talk as um, professional accountants about uh, life insurance, life insurance is, should only be taken out uh, in uh, our understanding is where we've actually got uh, debt that we don't want to be leaving to the surviving um, partner. If the surviving partner has got a very good job and whatever else, and that debt is not actually going to create an issue, then don't worry about it. So So let's say we've got a couple, right? One has a very high income, the other doesn't. Um, And let's say they've got half a million bucks worth of mortgage or a million bucks worth. So we need to, if we've got a million dollars worth of mortgage, then we probably need to look at if one doesn't have a good income or you've got uh, three children, four children or whatever, and the debt is a million dollars, well, insurance. Yeah. We'll cover it. So you insure as it, as it goes down. Yeah. Your insurance should go down. So you insure the you know you insure the person who has the income that services the mortgage. Yep. You don't necessarily need to have the same level of insurance on the person who does exactly it. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you may not even take out insurance on the other person at all. So it it should be related to the issue of leaving debt. It should have uh, the way the insurance industry sells it. You know, you could uh, gamble on you know, your partner dying and you know, suddenly become a millionaire. That is not why we take out life insurance. But uh, as another precautionary one, we had uh, a couple in a home who forgot to take out house insurance and came home from uh, actually uh, to find their house had burnt down and uh, created issues. So insurance is there to manage risk, no other reason. Yeah, and and big risk, right? Because, you know, if you're talking about your house being down, you've got a very big mortgage, right? That's a very big risk that's going to have pretty long-term profound impacts. Yes, Mm. that's right. They had to move away from Canberra. Canberra was just too expensive for them. They couldn't afford to carry what was what was left yeah yeah yeah. wow that would have been really tough very tough good warning for others i think yes Mm. Mm. another thing i like to bring up is because i deal with personality very early on identifying that uh, different personalities can take on different levels of risk and um, so there's financial risk and emotional risk you know uh, so if you're someone that is highly strung, but you know where you're wanting to get into uh, some kind of investments, etc., and all the emotion goes with it, you know, then you know I'm identifying that you know marriage and happy life is far more important than uh, bringing stress in. So you need to understand that um, uh, risk has to be dealt with financially 
and emotionally. Uh, and if you don't have the emotions to deal with it, yeah. then don't don't take it on. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine it's unusual to have two people who are married who have the same, you know. That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. So really what you're looking to do is draw the strengths out from your partner to help manage that. Yeah, but you don't want, uh, you You might be the high risk taker, but uh, you've got a partner that worries about uh, the grocery bill, uh, then please don't um, take out some high risk property because you're going to just make a rod for your own back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's really good. The other thing is, you know, well, sometimes you have people that uh, are getting married and they've previously been married and they've both got different uh, levels of finances that they're bringing in. And uh, some couples then like to um, keep uh, separate bank accounts. I prefer if you have joint bank accounts, but uh, simply, you know, once bitten, twice shy, a lot of people will want to carry uh, separate bank accounts. But what I identified to them is those bank accounts have to be transparent. So, you know, one couple, you know, is not receiving their bank statements and it's private from the other. Yeah. You know, we're, we need to be open. If we've actually made the commitment that we're, we're marrying, then please, you know, uh, if you're wanting to run separate bank accounts, they're not private or secret bank accounts. Otherwise, we're not one body, are we? We're two separate bodies living in the living in the same household. So one of the things that comes up, you know, in you know, some marriage counselling, other things that I've seen, you know, we talk about is that we often bring our own upbringings into our marriage. And so I assume it's no different in terms of our financial upbringings, you know, what we see our parents do, you know, we'll bring some of those philosophies and thinkings and ideas into our own marriage. As a parent, what are the things that we can do for our children to give them, you know, good, potentially good financial understanding or good good knowledge so that they're not taking bad habits and bad knowledge into their into their marriage? Well, you're bringing up the rich dad, poor dad scenarios from reading the books. You'll know that a lot of parents actually have poor uh, financial habits and uh, the Australian uh, society, you know, we are constantly being told that you know, 50% of Australians live uh, payday to payday or week, week to week. So if we've got uh, children, we want them to uh, see someone who's actually keeping records. We want them to uh, see that when mum and dad are talking about uh, going on a holiday, that mum and dad are talking about we're planning for that holiday and, uh, you know, we're setting aside money for the holiday. So uh, the, those things, you know, we would refer to in the, the psychology world as priming so that uh, it, it's good priming to uh, set these words within the kids' heads and uh, what they see their parents doing. My wife, I'm going to say my wife and I have never had an argument on money and the reason is is my dad was in uh, self-employed and uh, mum was a stay-at-home mum and there was always stress about money in the house. Yeah. Uh, there was eight children as well, so good reason, <laughs> <laughs> good reason. But I made a vow to myself that I would never allow money to be an issue within our house. 
So we have always kept records. We have always uh, run a budget. And my children have seen also the fruit of that, yeah. you know. So, And I assume as parents, you know, when you talk about priming, if, you know, if we're giving everything our, to our kids that they ask for and we shower them in gifts and whatever new fad toy or game or whatever that, you know, that their friends have and we're giving, we're giving them that or providing that whenever they want or need it, I assume we're setting them up for not good, good habits in terms of saving and understanding that you know, things take time. And Now, the other thing that uh, my wife does is the children can actually calculate exactly how much they're actually going to get for their birthday money and they know exactly what they're actually going to get for when they turn 18, etc. So they actually plan for what they're actually going to um, do with that money. So it actually creates an expectation. Once they've finished their 10th birthday, they know exactly how much they're going to get for their 11th birthday. They're running a budget. They, they know exactly, you know, <laughs> if I'm going to be buying Lego or whatever, I know what Nonna is going to contribute. But it's actually, um, it's not like some random toy that they get we actually provide an anticipation and a thinking. And so all of them actually use their uh, birthday money very cleverly. You know, they know Nonna's going to give me this and I've been saving up for this particular dress. With Nonna's money, I'm actually going to be able to afford it or whatever. Wow. So the Italians have a different way to the good old Irish Catholic way, which I grew up with at 18 kicked out the door and you're on your own. There's an expectation that we will work as a family, but uh, we use the money carefully and wisely. And that discretionary spending isn't out of control. Definitely not. Yeah. Okay, that's good. And we have uh, other things. They know that uh, Poppy has never spent a dollar on a Slurpee. (laughs) Poppy has never, you know, they, they can tell you, all these things, you know, uh, because they, I should go they and interview. To... I should go and interview them and ask them what what Poppy doesn't spend his money on. <laughs> yeah, no, they they know. So, but it, it is just um, good little things that they they know how Nonna and Poppy yeah. operate. Well, I think I, uh, I think I think the principle there is that as parents, you know, we have a responsibility to show good financial management to our children. Otherwise, we're not actually doing the right thing for them in terms of their future. That's right. Yeah, okay, good. Well, that's uh, what a fantastic list of topics for people to uh, to dwell on and to learn from. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks heaps for sharing uh, with us all of your experience over the years and the things that you've learnt um, through not only out of the scriptures, right, but also from your own personal career and then obviously from other couples and what you've seen them do. So thank you. Let's hope it's helpful. I'm sure it is. It'll be wonderful. Thank you. Amen. Well, there you have it. If you didn't get something out of that that you can take into your marriage, you probably weren't listening. That was great. Lots of lots of gold in there uh, for us. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for sharing your story. I really enjoyed our conversation. Until next time, God bless. Oh.